Andrew. Yes. This is a pretty special time of year. I mean, basically, you know how like March is Women's History Month? Mm -hmm. Well, April 12th is the anniversary of when the first human left our planet, Yuri Gagarin. Of course, yes. Yes. It was actually April 12th, 1961. Yuri Gagarin left this planet in a rocket, went to space, and came home again safely. Mm -hmm. And 50 years later, I was on the space station on exactly that day. I really love the fact that around the world, this is celebrated as a holiday and as a celebration of, you know, if Yuri can go, you know, the rest of us are next. Yes. And now Yuri's Night is celebrated around the world in dozens of countries, hundreds of parties. So I've got to ask you, what were the celebrations like this year? Well, they're ongoing because the 12th falls <laughs> right between two weekends. And it's actually, right. you know, a year when people can finally gather. And so last weekend was under the shuttle in Los Angeles, the shuttle discovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, next weekend will be in Florida under the shuttle Atlantis. Oh, I love that. Well, so what kind of people, <laughs> tell me who you think would go to such parties, Andrew? So I would imagine sort of the big thinkers around space, the people that are pushing boundaries, the people that are just sheer space geeks. I don't know, what sort of people were there? So now go towards the costume end of things, okay? Oh, wow, so this was cosplay? It, it, it is such a broad spectrum of people that- this is what, like Burning Man for space geeks? I would say just about. There are a lot of cool constructions costumes. Uh-huh. There's, you know, like all sorts of little interludes, you know, musical and dramatic interludes and cool speakers and and a bunch of people who've never met each other, but all share this one thing in common, that they think that exploration is just part of us. I love that. I love that. And I love the way you describe it almost as if it's like, like a sort of a grassroots sort of movement. This is people getting together because they love to get there. Some, you know, surprising celebrities that are really big fans of, of space, the inspiration. I think our producer would crew. like you to drop us some names here. <laughs> I, well, you know, Jennifer Lawrence did make an IMAX movie about the space station. So I went to the premiere of that IMAX movie. She sat in back of me and she kicked me. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, and I mean, she didn't choose to kick anyone else. She kicked my seat. So she liked me. <laughs> so we, we should probably get on with the show with that image of Jennifer Lawrence kicking Katie's seat in the back. Perfect. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. And welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're launching a two-part series asking, how can we make space more accessible for disabled people? And I must confess, Katie, these were two episodes that just blew me away. If there were ever any interviews we did that changed the way that I thought about space, these were they. Andrew, I'm so glad to hear that because, I mean, we we pick questions that that matter to us. And, and that's a question that's mattered to us for a long time. And it's certainly mm-hmm. one of the big questions in terms of space exploration, one of the groups that's clearly been missing, right, from the picture. Right. But I had the opportunity to work with Astro Access this fall and be part of sort of a four-day workshop getting ready for their zero-gravity flight. And I have literally not been the same ever since. Everything is a little bit different for me. And so I was really happy that we decided to make these episodes, and I'm glad that it seems to have affected you too. Absolutely. And there were so many takeaways from these conversations, but one of the things that really struck home to me was this idea that 
disabilities are about the environments we create. We create disabling environments rather than disable people. And that completely flipped around how I think about everything to do with space and how we're creating either enabling environments or disabling environments. So we're going to get back to that, but we should talk about our obsessions. So Katie, what have you been obsessing about this week? Kickball. Kickball. Tell me more. This is a this is a game that was played in elementary school, right? If you if if you were um, American um, or North uh, American, I mean, I do okay. I do not remember ever hearing about kickball until I got to the states. I must confess, I was not a particularly athletic kid, mm-hmm. and when I look back on it, the way I explain things to myself is, you know, I think I probably liked you know playing games that I could literally win. Mm-hmm. better inside the classroom. I mean, I was, I was a not kid that you're who competitive, was, but yes, n- not that on. I am competitive, <laughs> but you know, I, I mean, I'm somebody that, you know, was lucky enough to be good at things like standardized tests, but on the playground, I was not the first to be chosen. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about what those games will be when we're on Mars, when you take ah. away gravity. And even right. on the on, on the moon, you'd think we'd be warming up, but the moon, I mean, that's, you know, one sixth right, gravity, right? Right, so, right, right. So what are those games of the future going to be? And, and I bet the people that really excel at whatever we play on the moon or Mars are going to be different to the people that you might think would excel on Earth. It's going to be a game changer. Okay. Andrew, what is your obsession? So this fits in perfectly with your obsession, and about you not being picked, because I must confess, this week's obsession is you, Katie. Uh-oh. I don't know whether you remember this, Katie. You probably do. You recorded a podcast with somebody else a few weeks ago with Irish Stew. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. I do. So I was listening to this just the other day, and it was amazing. And it was amazing because it's over an hour of you in conversation and we hear the Katie that we never hear on this podcast because we're always here talking to other people. Um, But this was you talking about what has been really quite an incredible career. And I loved it. And I just want to, I want to establish that reality that as people listen to this podcast, they're listening to Katie Coleman, who got a PhD in chemistry, who went to MIT, that was inspired to become an astronaut by Sally Ryder, that has done amazing things. And we get to sit here and hang out with you. You're very nice to say that. But I, I, I think actually it's interesting to me too that, you know, we met in a coffee shop, Lance. Right. Karavi set us up on a blind podcast date, right? And, you know, instantly we had this rapport and it was just, I mean, I just could see that it was going to be fascinating to have these conversations. But because I don't actually live at ASU or are in the pandemic, our opportunity to really interact and know what each other does and go to each other's talks and those kinds of things have really been few and far between. So I actually like these sessions where we get to do, have a little conversation. And every time I learn more about Andrew. This is our dirty little secret. This is actually nothing about the podcast. It's just about (laughs) hanging out together. I think now it might be time to move on to our big (laughs) I think so. so. How can we make space more accessible to disabled people? So in 1990, the U.S. Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. And this was a landmark law. It was transformational, really. And one of the things it did was require that public spaces and services, not just government buildings and transportation, but restaurants, hotels, museums, stadiums, 
office buildings and movie theaters be accessible to people with disabilities. We've come a long way since the days when only superfit white guys could travel to space. But space exploration is still a domain that basically excludes disabled people. And this exclusion isn't simply the result of ignorance or oversight, and it's certainly not a requirement for doing science. Rather, it's a series of design decisions made by people and institutions that lead to environments that are disabling to people. So how do we change this situation? To get answers, we talked with two people working to make space more inclusive. In episode one of this two-part series, we spoke with Anne Capusta, the mission director of Astro Access. Astro Access is a non-profit project dedicated to promoting disability inclusion in space exploration. They're paving the way for disabled astronauts by taking diverse groups of disabled people on parabolic flights that produce brief periods of microgravity, like those experienced by astronauts in space. What I, I loved about working together with Astro Access is that the way they proceed forward is not to ask the question, you know, can disabled people go to space? But okay, so what are the challenges? And let's put our engineering and art and everything brains to work to figure out what are the solutions. And let's try them out in parabolic flight, which is the first place that for human space flight, we try things out. So their work is, is frankly inspiring, but it's also really important. I mean, the discoveries that they're making will definitely change the future of space exploration. Anka Pusto, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we want to talk about how we can make space more accessible for disabled people. But before we actually dive into that, Anne, can you give us a picture of the current state of affairs? And also, how on earth did we get to this current state of affairs? <laughs> so obviously, we have been space explorers to some degree for decades now. Uh, it has moved from a, a very narrow view through, you know, NASA and the International Space Station and only a handful of people that are up there to kind of the dawn of the commercial space age where space is being open to everybody. Last year, we saw the the largest number of people going to space and the largest number of uh, commercial astronauts, <laughs> commercial <laughs> tourists, space astronauts or space tourists going to the cosmos. So we're, we've really evolved what space means and how it's accessible for people over the last couple of years. And now the question is, and that's what Astro Access is really about, is is asking the question of as we open the space frontier to everybody, how do we make sure that everybody is everybody? <laughs> so, so Right. So we really get that everybody right. But I mean, how do we actually get to this place in the first place? I mean, so if you go back to those early days of, of the space programs, who decided that only this incredibly thin slice of society and, and people get to go up to space? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, a necessity back then. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, when the Apollo program was starting out, it was really about minimizing variables. If you think about it as uh, a science experiment, which it ultimately was, the ability to minimize variables 
to make sure that it was successful, human lives were on the line and we were experimenting was really, really important for NASA. So they became very set on a certain criteria. And we all know what that certain criteria (laughs) is. It's the right right stuff, is male, it is, you know, a certain height, it is a certain body type. It was very, very narrowed from the beginning. And we built systems to get to space that took that into account because we eliminated the variables. Now, as time went on, we obviously opened that up to a degree. We cracked the door. I was going to say, because I'm (laughs) I'm looking here at Katie on the screen, and Katie isn't a (laughs) six-foot muscular white guy. No. I don't think. (laughs) No. I don't even think I aspire that way. (laughs) But, But also just looking at those pictures from the early days, it never occurred to me that like, oh, I'd like to do that. That could be me. You know, part of what's important here is that if we're going to send people off the planet, it should be representative of all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as the door started to to open a little bit to diversity in space travel, um, to people like Katie, to women, <laughs> what you see is that a lot of the systems that were initially created were just adapted. So they were modified slightly. There are still plenty of restrictions as to, you know, body type and height that go into the astronaut core. Eyesight, hearing, the list goes on. Yep. But, but it's so interesting because in the, the sort of work that I do, we talk about things like technological lock-in, which basically means you make those early decisions and then it's almost impossible to veer away from those decisions because everything is built around them. And it sounds like we had a bit of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Systems were designed for safety and reliability. And so vastly changing those at any given time to make that decision um, was potentially putting people's lives at risk. So to make incremental improvements or adaptations to that technology or, or what was created was the easiest way to go. And I think what we're seeing now, as I kind of talked about when I started, was we're at the dawn of a new space age. And now things are opening up again. We're, we're at the next uh, precipice of where we can think about space travel and new space vehicles are being created as we speak. Um, and I think that's where this opportunity is, is why Astro Access happened now, is because the conversation can happen now, again, uh, starting from the beginning instead of retrofitting. And, and what I like about what I understand, and I'm hoping you'll tell us more about Astro Access, is that instead of just saying, well, what should it be like? It was like, you you were specific. Okay, these new flights, what do people need to be able to do? Mm -hmm. They need to know if there's a problem. They need to be able to strap themselves into their seat. They need to be able to get out, get in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest thing with access and disability is that it's a social construct. If, if, uh, you know, doors were originally designed larger, wider from the beginning, uh, they would be able to be used for people in wheelchairs or people not in wheelchairs equally. And it's thinking about that, those sort of decisions from the beginning. So you're not, you know, kind of designing specially for different people. Um, and I think that's the big thing about accessibility is that if you design correctly for accessibility and you design it from the beginning, right. then it's better for everybody. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's the approach that Astro Access tried to do. And exactly what Katie was saying is that we we broke down um, 
space travel into its core elements of what does it take to travel to space? And, you know, really looked at it from the commercial aircrafts right now. And, and we should we should actually um, sort of address who the we is here. So Astro Access yes. that we've talked about a lot. Um, <laughs> tell us about the genesis of this and who the we are here. Absolutely. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> Who called you on the phone and what did they say they were trying to do and why did you join? (laughs) Yeah, so Astra Access was kind of the brainchild of uh, two people that met at at a conference, a space conference, gosh, only about a year and a half ago. So it's not very old. Wow, this is recent. Um, it's very recent. Totally. Yep. <laughs> and it was Anna Volker, who is the executive director of an organization called SciAccess, which promotes disability inclusion in science and STEM. And they had a conversation with George Whitesides, the former CEO of Virgin, about space travel and the future of space travel. So obviously, you can see where these two minds, somebody who has, you know, championed, you know, commercial space travel. And then Anna, who is championing disability inclusion in in science here on Earth, kind of thought, why can't we do this in space? Okay, what's the the quickest thing that we can do to get there? And from George's experience, the quickest thing is a zero-gravity flight. It's what it's a, it's the place start, we practice. It's, it's the place we figure. It's the way place we figure things out before we actually go to space. Exactly, it, it, exactly. It's where it's the genesis of how you test experiments. You know, get your first uh, experience in kind of floating in a microgravity or simulated microgravity environment. So George was like, "We can make this happen in a very short amount of time and prove that designing for accessibility isn't hard mm-hmm. if you think about it first. And that was really the mission statement of Astro Access was everybody thinks that accessibility is hard because they always think about it in the retrofitting sense. And what Astro Access set out to prove is that it's not hard if you design for it first and you think about it first. So they started Astro Access, then they picked the flight date and then decided how they were going to go about uh, selecting ambassadors, which were our disabled flyers on the flight. We referred to them as our Astro Access ambassadors. So they kind of went through this whole process. And then really Astro Access was officially launched or announced uh, July 17th or July 15th of last year. It was an incredible uh, group that we, (laughs) we got as our first 12 ambassadors. And honestly, we got over a hundred applications for the flight and it was incredibly difficult to choose the 12 ambassadors, um, Mm. because the, the qualifications and the interest and the passion from the disability community for space travel and for this opportunity to, to, to be included in this dream that, I mean, who hasn't dreamed of going to space? <laughs> um, and, and for Astro Access to come out and say, just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you can't be included in this dream. Say, t- tell, tell, tell us about how you planned the flight. I mean, what? so what was the, what were you going to accomplish on the flight? And how did that work out? You know, we really started with, you know, again, what are the key principles? What are the basic 
requirements for anybody to travel to space. Um, and there are some key requirements of getting into your seat. And when you get up and float around in the cabin, you know, then it's orientation and navigation around that space. You know, when gravity is no longer an indicator for you, um, you start to have to make sure that you, you know where you're at. And then the, the kind of final component that we talked about was really as you're returning to Earth and re-entering a gravity environment, you have to get back to your seat safely uh, and attach a five-point harness to make sure that you're secured as you enter back in, into Earth's gravity. And for this first flight, we really focused on physical and sensory disabilities. Um, so we, we were looking at people with uh, mobility disabilities, uh, those who were blind or those who were deaf or hard of hearing. We're looking at the challenges and opportunities that everybody faces. And this user group allows us to look at this in a new way. So when you're thinking about orientation, for example, the, the traditional means that we've designed and used for so long rely on sight. Uh, but now we take that away and you're thinking, okay, well, how do I orient? How do I know up from down if there's not a, a gravity indicator? Mm-hmm. And obviously we have to think about sound and tactile and you know all these different mechanisms. But when you start thinking about that in a broader sense, you think about the ways this can be beneficial for everybody. So in an emergency situation uh, or just in every day when things are happening and there's a lot of stuff going on and you're, you're focused on one thing, using one of your senses for, you know, the work that you're performing on station, how beneficial would it be to have a sound indicator or a vibrotactile, which is haptics like vibration and, mm-hmm. and, and sensory things that you can touch to know exactly what's happening and what, what's going on. So that was really, you know, we wanted to break apart this as, a, as an opportunity to think think outside the box of how space travel has been designed so far and all the ways that in an emergency or non-emergency situation, we can design a better, you know, system for that. Better for everyone. Um, so, so George said he thought that a flight was possible, that he could do that and make that happen. What does that mean? So you've, you've chosen a dozen or so ambassadors. What kind of flight are they going to go on? Yeah. Well, what is a flight? <laughs> That's a great question and one that I don't naturally think to answer. Um, So yeah, exactly. What we mean in in a flight in this sense is a a zero gravity flight. Um, So what that is, is is a parabolic aircraft. So essentially a a Boeing 727 uh, that uh, is predominantly hollowed out of all the seats in the inside of it, except for a few rows in the back where you sit for takeoff and landing. And when you get up to altitude and it's safe to take off your seatbelts, you move into this open area in the aircraft um, and the plane starts going in arcs. Um, so steep Like ascents. a porpoise. Exactly. Like up yeah. Up <laughs> and down and up and down. Yep. Yep. So steep ascents where you experience higher than normal gravity. You crest the top of the peak. And when you fall, you're basically in free fall uh, in the plane. But what that simulates is a little bit of that weightless uh, microgravity environment. Um, These parabolas uh, that they go through are only about 20 or 30 seconds that you get of this weightlessness. Mm. Um, And you do this about 15 times during the flight. So you get to experience at the end of the day, a couple of minutes of of this weightless experience, but in these kind of broken out sections. So that's what we're referring to as as a flight. So full disclosure, George uh, called in or wrote to me and and asked me if I would help coach 
for the flight because I have been on a number of zero gravity flights. And I, I think it's the most magical, fun, amazing thing because it's in being in space. I mean, part of, I think the magic of that is that feeling of being weightless and feeling like the possibilities are endless and just so different than the ones you have on the ground. And so Katie, were you with the ambassadors as they went up? I was. I was. And what was that like? It was amazing to watch. We had six mobility-challenged astronauts. And, and interesting to me was the fact that this plane doesn't just do zero gravity, but they do lunar parabolas as well, meaning what is the gravity like on the moon? And so they we give them that amount of gravity. And for the mobility challenge, several mobility challenge folks, to them, that was like the moment that they said, you know, one of them said, Sawyer said, you know, I haven't stood up on my legs since I was 11. Hmm. Whereas when you're floating, it's like you're either sitting or in your chair or you're floating, right. but then to be in between and on your feet. And that same sentiment came in. Um, I, I was with Dana Bowles, who's a NASA scientist. And in my experience, as soon as you go weightless, you think, oh, I'm weightless, and but you haven't quite gone anywhere yet, and you give yourself just that little push that when the, then when you are weightless, now you are like a rocket racing across the plane. So they really try to have people keep themselves sort of under control. And in my experience, people don't really understand where their bodies are because it's so foreign, because it happens so fast, and the whole world is moving in a strange way. And yet, um, Dana is someone, she's at a wheelchair, she has uh, prosthetic arms, and both with her arms and her prosthetic arms, she's used to, you know, getting in and out of her chair, you know, every day of her life. I mean, she knows exactly where her body is in space all the time. And she knew where it was in space on that plane as well. So it's really interesting to me that the new possibilities that um, folks found on this flight. So that that's one of the things that I find mind-blowing, that you put people with what we would consider disabilities on Earth in a different environment, and all of a sudden, you discover that they've got other abilities. <laughs> Ex exactly. I mean, I think that's, I, I, I used this phrase earlier, but uh, disability is a social construct, and gravity is one of the main disabling factors. Uh, <laughs> right, you know, right. So you put people who have disabilities in earth environment in a space environment and they're no longer disabled in fact some of the stuff that we talked about was ways that there are inherent advantages right. to having a right. disability in so space so now the disabled I mean, person is the traditional astronaut exactly and and there's and there's tons of ways that you can just imagine this uh, you know and Katie I'm sure you can talk to this <laughs> better but legs are overpowered in space uh, a lot of times I thought you were going to say overrated, but overpowered. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they probably are overrated a bit too, but <laughs> but uh, definitely overpowered is what I've I've heard stories of. You know, astronauts having to when they get up in station having to readjust because exactly what Katie was saying when you push off uh, in a zero gravity environment, you start rocketing across right. uh, across the station and and your arms are enough to do that. I mean, hair is enough to do that. But the thing we use our feet for on the station is we often use them to hold us in one place while we're going to work with two arms. Yeah. And and so that might not be convenient for folks who don't have the use of their legs, but right? That's because we designed it that way. Right. <laughs> Agreed. But I think that's the big the big thing is that 
we didn't need to design it where you need feet. And that was some of the the stuff that, you know, Katie really brought to the team as well, talking about that. And we tried to, in this very first flight, um, we tested very rudimentary systems, but ways to maintain station keeping without needing a foothold or a handhold. Because, you know, if, if you're thinking about a microgravity environment, you don't need to have something that can hold the full weight of your body. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't take much to hold people in place. And, you know, you can do that in a lot of different ways other than, you know, a foot strap. Um, so I, I was going to say, in fact, ours are so primitive and they don't work very well. It's literally just a strap that is held down by duct tape. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and in the course we of We have to get months, the duct, duct tape, tape somewhere. <laughs> we, we did. We had plenty of it on our flight too, so... <laughs> So, so, Anne, I, so this is amazing, but of course, this is just a first step. Um, how do you tease out lessons from this and then how do you apply them to actual space flight and actually get disabled people up into space? Truly? The first is the obvious repeat flights uh, on zero gravity. So we want to continue to create an ongoing flight opportunities, both with our current ambassadors so that you know, they can learn from this experience and evolve the the experiments that they had, but also continue to bring in new uh, ambassadors and give them this experience and, and kind of grow this network. Um, I think it was really important, you know, a really important element of Astro Access is that the the disability ambassadors are are researchers and their teammates with us. Mm-hmm. Um, their lived experience is going to allow us to design the systems that work best for them. Um, so we want to build a team that can gather this experience and then use it to help work with organizations that are building these next generation uh you know, habitats, the next generation space stations, the next generation launch vehicles. So, you know, the more that we use these zero gravity flights to test design solutions, the better we can be at at really advising the community uh, the best way to build the next the next space station. It couldn't be doing this at a better time because uh, the announcement of the commercial space stations that are going to replace the ISS, those designs are happening now. And if we're not here to demand accessible space, it's not going to happen. And that's what Astroaccess is here to make sure that as we design it, we're designing it accessibly. And I have to tell one fantastic story. <laughs> uh, one of our ambassadors, Dr. Mona Mankara, uh, who's blind, uh, they were giving the tour of SpaceX and SpaceX is not used to having to describe in words everything that's happening inside of the factory and inside of the facility. And they're, they're standing underneath, you know, one of the, the booster rockets that's hanging above. It's the and capsule. It's the, an actual SpaceX capsule that had been to space. Yeah. <laughs> it's right above their heads. A dragon capsule. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was a booster, but it was a dragon capsule. Right above their heads in this, you know, tour guide is kind of describing it to, that, to, to our ambassador crew. And Mona just says, can I touch it with my cane? <laughs> and the, the tour guide thought for a second, I guess so. But he never thought about that's the way that Mona can get an idea of what the the size and the texture and how this thing is. And, you know, to just 
think differently about how you even give a tour right. uh, and the impact that had. Exactly. Think about as we you know, continue to open people's eyes to how to do that in space travel as we move forward. <laughs> and we could carry on talking for ages. And we're going to have to come back to this subject because it's not only so fascinating, but so important. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure. And uh, I would be happy to come back anytime and pick up the conversation right where we left off. Well, Anne, it's just a pleasure. And thanks for doing what you're doing. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you what space looks like. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Okay, Andrew, what do you think that was? This was an interesting one. So I'm trying to wrap my head around it. There was quite a lot of plinking there. In fact, actually, a lot of it sounded quite metallic. Um, And I'm sure this isn't what it is. But you know, when you heat metal up and then cool it down, sometimes it plinks just as it contracts. You had this plink, plink, plink. And then you had these weird sort of straining sounds as if it was sort of metal being strained and rubbed against each other, uh, other as well. And then some nice orchestral chords underneath, none of which makes any sense whatsoever ever when it comes to space, unless it was the side of the International Space Station heating up and cooling down in sunlight. Well, I did actually hear a little plinking up there one time. Uh See, I'm not totally off base. And actually, it was loud clanging. And basically, it was right before I was leaving the space station and the space shuttle had arrived. So the shuttle crew was there too. And I woke up the first night after they docked, or I woke up the next morning, to people climbing on the roof. (laughs) <laughs> people and, climbing and, on the roof of the right your roof yes. i guess and, yes. and, and, I, and i was like it's not supposed to happen this way like <laughs> it's just you know i've been up here like almost six months and there has been no one on the roof for good reason not supposed to be there and then i remembered that the shuttle crew was on a different sleep shift so they were already like in the middle of their day and they were out spacewalking i see so so one of the wasn't one of those things where you just sort of hammered on the roof saying hey you sort of shut up up there i'm trying to sleep Exactly. Okay, but... Yeah, so what was this? What we heard was, this is the sound of the Orion Nebula. The invisible light from this nebula traveled more than 1,300 light years to be captured by the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, ALMA, A-L-M-A, an array of 66 radio telescopes in Chile. It's the most complex astronomical observatory on Earth. A team of scientists and artists converted those radio waves into sound waves, collecting them into a folder, which I thought was a cool trick, that they shared with artists who used them to create compositions like the one you just heard. So this is the beautiful Orion Nebula acting as the raw material for musicians and composers. And anyone can access these files from the ALMA website. And in our show notes, 
we've linked that website so that you can hear all sorts of different composers and musicians and their interpretation of that data. That is pretty awesome. But so you're saying that this was not metal cooling down that you know i actually i think i was pretty it was close kind i mean of like nebula that, but metal okay? nebula metal not too far yeah kind of the same <laughs> but different but actually i so this is amazing um and it this is the physicist in me but i find it amazing to think that those photons left that nebula what something like 1300 or so years ago you think what were we doing as a species 1300 years ago and now they arrive on earth and we're making music from them isn't that incredible? See, what I love is that, you know, Orion is something that, a, I mean, a lot of people can recognize in the, st- in the sky, you know, here in the Northern Hemisphere in right. the winter, it's really easy to see. And so now I have something to think about different than I thought about before every time I see Orion. I love that. So you've got that additional connection there with your experiences. So let's listen to that again. it for this week. We're so glad you joined us. Remember to listen to part two of this series next week. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. We really want those reviews. Write to us from our website at missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter and send us a tweet at at ii underscore asu. And of course, recommend us to your friends. It really does help us. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.